you have your copies of God's word open, I'd invite you to follow along with me in Exodus chapter 20. This evening, I'm beginning a new series on the Ten Commandments, and my hope is to cover uh, one commandment per sermon. But tonight, I want to provide an overall introduction to the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words as they're called in Scripture. The Ten Commandments reflect the very moral character of our triune God. And so these Ten Commandments are very important for us today because they provide us with a moral framework. Throughout the history of the Church, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed uh, served as an essential part of Christian discipleship. They were the building blocks for believers uh, as they were catechized. And some of us have probably experienced this, whether we have memorized the Ten Commandments or uh, as children, um, and this is a biblical thing to do, to memorize Scripture in this way. In Deuteronomy 6, God calls us to bind up his commands on our hearts, to diligently teach them to our children, to talk of them when we sit in our houses, when we walk, when we lie down, and when we rise. And the idea is that God's perfect law is to be so saturated in our minds and in the minds of our children that they become second nature to us. We are called to treasure up God's commandments and write them on the tablets of our hearts, says Proverbs 7, verse 3. And this is the Old Testament way of actually speaking about memorization, binding them up on the tablets of our hearts. And when God's commandments soak into the the very core of our being through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we grow in conformity to Christ, we respond in faith. And And we still need the commandments of God today. We constantly need to be reminded of God's perfect law because we continually go our own way. And the world that we live in today has lost its way. There was a book that came out in 2014. It's called Atheist Mind, Humanist Heart. And it came out with a list of 10 non-commandments. And I'm not going to outline them for you here. You can look them up at home if you're interested. Uh, But what is striking about these 10 non-commandments is that I think it captures the spirit of this age, uh, this present evil age. And the reoccurring theme that is in this list is the claim that there is no moral absolute, that there is nothing objective that can be imposed on other human beings. And this is really where we are today as a society. Each person does what is right in their own eyes. Uh, This is called moral relativism. And our world has not always had such contempt for moral absolutes. Even in America, the idea of justice as we know it today, it was built on the idea of moral absolutes. In many courthouses, even in this country, still today, they have uh, symbols of the Ten Commandments or even, uh, even have them written out and featured prominently. 
But sadly, as a society today, we want nothing to do with moral absolutes. And the church in the West is not far behind. And so my prayer for us in our study of the Ten Commandments is that we will come to see God's word as perfect, as holy, and wise. That we would relish God's law and that we would delight in it. God's law is a moral absolute. It's not arbitrary. It's not something that's relative to each person. And here's what I want you to dwell on this evening as we uh, look at God's word together. True freedom and joy is found in living in accordance with God's law. And although we can never keep God's law perfectly, it provides us instruction on how we ought to live as we are conformed unto the image of Christ. So tonight I, wanna, I want to answer three questions for us. Firstly, what is God's law? Secondly, what is God's law for? And thirdly, how does the gospel relate to God's law? So let's look together firstly at what is God's law. Christians today are often accused of being inconsistent. You know, why, why is it that we claim to uphold God's law when we don't adhere to Old Testament commandments such as shaving regulations or dress codes? But when we understand what is meant by God's law, I think we'll find that there is no inconsistency God's law is his perfect standard of righteousness. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which is one of our confessional documents, it, it has a really helpful breakdown of what exactly is God's law. In chapter 19 uh, of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it divides God's law into three different categories. The first one is the moral law of God. And the moral law of God was first given to Adam in the garden, and it was later delivered on two tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. This is the perfect standard of righteousness that is universally binding upon all of mankind. The second category of law that we find is the ceremonial law. These are ritual laws that we find throughout the Old Testament Uh, that actually prefigure Christ, that point to our Lord. An example of a ceremonial law uh, would be laws pertaining to sacrificing an unblemished animal. And with the coming of Christ, ceremonial laws are no longer applicable, and so we no longer observe them. The third category of law that we find is what's called the judicial law or the civil law. And these are laws that uniquely applied to the nation-state of Israel as a kingdom under God's rule. An example of a judicial law in the Old Testament would be uh, stoning of Sabbath breakers. And while the judicial law has expired and we no longer observe it today as Christians, the moral principles that undergird uh, a judicial law or the general equity of that, as, as our confession speaks about, uh, still applies. 
So when we speak about God's law, we can say that there are three divisions, the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial. And the moral law is what I want us to focus our attention on, God's perfect standard of righteousness, because the moral law is eternal. Ceremonial and judicial laws have passed away with the advent of Christ, but God's moral law abides forever. And God's moral law is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. This is where we discover the perfect moral character of our triune God. We read this evening from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And I want to draw your attention now to the preface of the Ten Commandments found in verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this preface to the Ten Commandments is important for us because we see that God's moral law is direct speech. And certainly we affirm that all of the scripture is breathed out by God. But what we see here is God speaking directly. And it is because of who God is that we are to listen to him. God says, I am the Lord your God. It's interesting in the previous chapter in Exodus 19, verses 16 and 19, the connection between when God speaks and thunder. Because in the Hebrew, the same word is used there for thunder and for voice. In other words, when God speaks, the earth trembles. And because he is perfectly holy and glorious and mighty, uh, when he speaks, we are summoned to listen to the words of our God. And when God speaks here to his people in Exodus 20, he speaks as though a father speaks to his son. There are parallels between uh, the speech patterns in Exodus 20 and speech patterns in Proverbs And this tells us that when God gives the Ten Commandments, we we also see his fatherly love and care on display. J.I. Packer says this, God's parental law expresses God's parental love. You see, God's desire is that we would live wisely, that through our union with Christ, we would reflect the very character of God that is on display in each of these commandments. So we can say that God's law is the standard. It is the moral absolute, the standard of perfect righteousness that displays God's moral character. And we can say that the ceremonial and the judicial laws have expired with the advent of Christ, but that God's moral law is universal, it is eternal, And it is binding upon all people at all times. But how do we make sense of how Jesus interprets the Ten Commandments for us in the Gospels? Does Jesus add to God's law? Does he break God's law? For instance, uh, when, when the Pharisees accuse him of violating the Sabbath? Well, the answer is no, Uh, And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And what Jesus reveals to us is that the law of God has always been concerned with our hearts, our thoughts, and our intentions. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 here to to touch on some of these commandments that we read of in Exodus 20. For example, uh, you shall not commit adultery. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that we actually commit adultery when we look with lustful intent. We are all lawbreakers, Jesus is saying. And Christ exposes that the Ten Commandments are not merely a list of do's and don'ts, but rather a summons to obey God with every fiber of our being, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And yet no one can keep the standard of righteousness in his or her own strength, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, But Jesus is revealing to us that no one can keep the moral law of God perfectly, that all have sinned and fall short. And in the Gospels, our Lord also provides a helpful summary of the entirety of the Ten Commandments that, again, teach us that the law is given not merely uh, for external adherence, but internal renewal. God's law is not just about staying within the guardrails, but about loving and worshiping God. Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These two commandments that Jesus gives to us, they essentially boil down like this. Firstly, love God, and secondly, love neighbor. And think about it. As as we read through Exodus chapter 20 and we read God's law, we see that the first four laws, they are concerned with loving God and worshiping him rightly. Now look at the, the, the last six laws. They are all concerned with loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus summarizes these as love your neighbor. And so we see that our Lord doesn't contradict the Ten Commandments, but rather fulfills them. Irenaeus puts it this way, Christ fulfills the law that he spoke from Sinai. In other words, Christ, in the unity of the Godhead, speaks to us both from Mount Sinai and to us through his perfect word. This is the perfect law of liberty that is mentioned uh, in James chapter 1, verse 25. And this verse is uh, very significant. Many uh, commentators have picked up on this, this verse. And one commentator says this, on James 1, verse 25, that when James speaks of the perfect law of liberty, he does not refer narrowly to the law of Moses, but to the law of Moses as interpreted and supplemented by Christ. You see, when we are enslaved to sin, we can only act according to our sinful nature. But when we are set free from the bondage of sin and we receive new life in Christ, we begin to live according to God's design. And this is 
true liberty. True liberty is found in living in accordance with God's moral law. The second question we need to answer as we study the the Ten Commandments together is this. What is God's law for? Well, within our Reformed tradition, we often refer to the three different uses of God's law. And I think you'll find these very useful as we think through God's commandments. The first use of God's law is this, that it shows our need for Christ. If you think of God's law as a mirror, instead of telling us how beautiful we are, it tells us how ugly we are. But really, the, 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 the first use of God's law is meant to reveal our sinfulness, our depravity. I mean, even as we, as we read this evening from Exodus 20, we sense the weight of our own sin, thinking about how we measure up to God's moral standard. We sin against God every day, and our sin is ever before us. And this is why Paul can speak of the law as a schoolmaster in Galatians. Or in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And even those who are born again in Christ, we can't keep God's law perfectly. Only Christ has perfectly kept every letter of the law. And so the law exposes our depravity and our need to cling to Christ. And each sin that we commit is a violation of God's moral law. Not only uh, one of God's commandments, but the whole of the moral law. As Martin Luther says, no sin comes alone, but it always prompts one after it. Every sin of commission, every sin of omission is both a failure to love God and to love neighbor. This is the first use of the law. The law condemns us and we cannot save ourselves. And so we must trust in Christ and his righteousness, which is freely given to us if we place our faith in him. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 1 Timothy chapter Uh, 1 verses 9 through 11, where he writes this, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. God's law, it it restrains wickedness because of the impending judgment that awaits for those who do not repent. John Calvin puts it like this. He says, the second use of God's law is by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Well, the third use of God's law, which is where we're going to focus most of our attention in this series on the Ten Commandments, the third use of God's law is to reveal how we are 
to live. We can call this the normative use of God's law. God's perfect standard of righteousness is the norming norm for all people. And as sons and daughters of the Most High, as those who have been called out of darkness into life, this third use of the law teaches us what it means to walk in newness of life. And even though we can't keep God's law perfectly, this third use of the law instructs us in what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God. As the Heidelberg Catechism states, uh, we, are, we are actually seeking to obey God's law out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for what he has done for us. And God's moral law, under this third use, it is a guidebook for our life. It is a roadmap that direct our footsteps. This is why the psalmist can say, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the implications of God's moral law under this third use of of how we should live, uh, the implications are vast. One of the things I hope that we'll see together is uh, the wide reach of God's law. Because of the way that Jesus interprets for us the Ten Commandments, we see that, uh, that behind every prohibition is something much more encompassing. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism has a really helpful section on the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to uh, get into it tonight. If, you'd, if you're curious, I would commend it uh, to you to uh, read at home. But this is what it says when speaking about the Ten Commandments. Where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. My prayer is that in thinking through this third use of God's law, that our hearts will yearn to grow together in obedience to Christ. And the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification is continually making us more like Christ. The last question that I want to answer uh, for us briefly this evening is this. How does the gospel relate to God's law? Well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has died for sinners like you and me, and that if we trust in him, we receive his righteousness. And how is it that Christ secures our salvation for us? Well, it is through his death and his perfect obedience. Christ is the only one who has kept God's law perfectly, the only one who has perfectly attained the righteous standard of God's moral law. And what his fulfillment means is that on our behalf, he has fulfilled the law for us. We now receive his righteousness if we place our faith and hope in him. We now have an alien righteousness, meaning a righteousness that is not ours, a righteousness that is given to us, imputed to us. And when we keep the law, we don't merit our salvation. One trespass against God's law is worthy of eternal condemnation. The only way that we... we 
stand before the throne of grace and we can claim a crown of glory is by pointing to Christ and his perfect righteousness. And so this is how God's law relates to the gospel. We transgress God's law daily. We are continually in need of his grace. And yet we are clothed in the righteous garments of Christ such that we can say, not my righteousness, but his. Jesus has kept the law of God that we could never keep. And so as we meditate on God's law and as we dwell on Christ's sacrifice, we need to avoid two ditches. And the two ditches are antinomianism and legalism. Antinomianism is a contempt for God's law. It presumes on God's grace. The spirit of antinomianism is this. You know, Christ has already kept the law for me, and I can't keep the law, so I may as well go on sinning. But we need to take heed of Paul's words in Romans 6, where he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, when we presume on the grace of God in this way, we cheapen the gospel. We trample Christ underfoot. The writer to the Hebrews says this, that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Well, the other side of the ditch that we must avoid is legalism. And legalism is when we either subconsciously or consciously think that our keeping of God's law is what saves us. And we as Christians are constantly falling into this trap. The devil continually deceives us and uh, our sinful pride leads us to think that it is our personal holiness that is our ticket to heaven. But look at what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and that we've been saved by grace through faith and that this is not our own doing but a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. As I said earlier, the righteousness of the Christian, the righteousness of of you that you and I have. It is an alien righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ which is freely offered to us in the gospel. And when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we meet God's moral standard. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, here's the news flash: We can't be perfect, but Christ has been perfect for us. And we are now presented as those who are dressed in his righteous robes. This is our great hope. Thinking that we can attain perfection on our own is like trying to walk up an escalator the wrong way. It's self-defeating. And at the same time, God's moral law, it is a reflection of his character. It's really a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will. May the God of all grace give us his spirit that through our union with Christ, we may delight in God's law and live for him. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet. And we praise you for your marvelous grace. We ask that you would teach us to walk in the paths of righteousness, not trusting in our own efforts or our our own merits. We pray that you would transform and renew our minds, O Lord, and give us new affections that delight to do your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.